It's only entertainment. Welcome back to the Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Welcome back to the Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got Ryan Anson. He is with Revolutionary Clinics, founder uh, and manager right now. Ryan, thanks for being with us at the Talking Hedge. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, tell us a little bit about, um, you're in Massachusetts. Uh, you're, at least you have a rec shop. I saw some stuff online. I think you also grow. Maybe you're vertically integrated. Maybe you can explain what it is and what you do. Sure. So um, I'm in general on the investment side within the industry for the last almost seven years. Um, and one of the vehicles that we've been most involved in uh, was co-founding the company Revolutionary Clinics, which is, as you pointed out, a vertically integrated license holder here in Mass. Uh, we really believe that this industry was uh, amply or uh, appropriately complicated. That we wanted to go deep uh, into one geography and really understand it and really deliver a consistent products, consistent service within one space, while a lot of my peers uh, who have been around the industry for uh, the same amount of time or longer um, have, have expanded to be thin across many geographies. Mm -hmm. And so Rev is now one of the largest wholesalers in Massachusetts. Um, we have real pride and care in our medical uh, category of our business. We have three medical facilities. And now in 2022, we're starting to open up uh, adult use shops as well. Um, lots in Rev and lots outside of Rev, um, within 16, uh, holdings and two funds that I participate in, uh, and excited to dive in with you. Yeah. It's, um, new emerging market in Massachusetts. Um, are, are you guys, you guys are, are you guys adult use yet? Um, so probably 85% of our revenue comes from the adult use market because of our wholesale and distribution side. Okay. Uh, and we have one store opening up in Lemonster, Massachusetts, probably uh, August, September. And then one of our stores in Somerville, Mass, uh, evolves from medical to adult use, perhaps the same month, perhaps one month later. Uh, and 2023 uh, will mark our opening of our Cambridge stores. Okay. So it's Maryland. I was thinking of that's medical only. So you guys have, or you guys are uh, adult. Oh, use. you guys being Massachusetts. Yeah. Massachusetts has been adult use since 2018. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, interesting. So you guys are, are, are most, are not mostly focusing, but you guys seem to uh, be early on to, to uh, the game. And so therefore have kind of first mover advantages in supplying a lot of the markets uh, in general at the wholesale level. Was that organic? Was that intended? Or did that happen, um, you know, without yeah, that, that That was a, that was a, um, a partial pivot, I'd say. Um, so we worked really hard early on to get, real estate in areas of the state that voted overwhelmingly in favor of adult use sales, even though the program hadn't rolled out yet, that, that makes economic sense. And so we have two stores in Cambridge, Mass, one in Somerville, and both of those cities have taken uh, very um, long, pensive, strategic approaches to uh, opening their stores and who gets to open and when. And uh, that's a, a topic for maybe a one or two hour podcast of, of uh, 
the socioeconomic advantages and disadvantages of uh, partnering up uh, within the industry versus uh, having a free market. Um, and certainly an interesting, interesting thing to talk about. We started this company as a social enterprise, as, as has been my life. Uh, I, I started Rev to democratize earnings in cannabis and to help revitalize old mill towns. And so the, the, the social equity side, economic empowerment side of the industry is critically important to us, has always been a, a part of the company's ethos. And so we understood when Cambridge and Somerville wanted to implement particular rules uh, to force the hand of, of, uh, of all different types of license holders. Um, so we were prepared to be meaningful wholesale players in that scenario. Um, we also, and my family had a background in the footwear industry, which is a balance of working both in branded retail and branded um, manufacturing and then white label. And for us, it always comes down to uh, doing what you say you're going to do, delivering high quality products, uh, as it says on the purchase order, and outpacing your competition by being really helpful uh, to, to, uh, to your business partners. And so we didn't, we could have never imagined having gone into two cities that voted north of 75% in favor of adult use cannabis that, you know, halfway through 2022, they still wouldn't be open. Um, but I'm incredibly proud of the team for delivering 99.85% on time, full and accurate deliveries as a logistics company needs to and should uh, while, while uh, catering to the market demands of constantly changing uh, flavors of the day, flavors of the month. And uh, it's, it's not easy, but super exciting when you can, when you can make those trains arrive on time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, philanthropic um, ideology surrounding the cannabis industry. There's a lot of altruism and kind of good feeling behind that. It's medicinal and there's um, a lot of folks who see through the schedule one. Um, you guys opened up in a shoe warehouse. I think there's a lot of maybe metaphors to that, talking about outpacing the competition and just you know walking in, in your shoes for a minute. Um, have you ever felt like the cannabis industry should be unionized in the way that um, have a heart here in Seattle unionized several years ago, kind of now you're seeing Starbucks and Amazon and the revolution for, you know, workers and, and, and the huge shift that's happening. Are you, do you kind of, do you feel that same thing over in Massachusetts in, in, in what's happening um, and the economy overall, and then as it pertains to cannabis, are you implementing that at the local level? Sure. So lots of questions there. Um, first, I am not an expert on unions and unionization. Um, however, what I've seen in the situation, I, I think in Michigan, uh, as it relates to Amazon that, you, that you're describing, uh, if it's not Michigan, I apologize. Um, but generally, that starts with... Um, real discord, real concern within the employee population. And we believe in treating our teammates and our teams holistically. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a great book called Holacracy uh, and a great theory around holacracy that we bring our whole selves, our full selves to our jobs. 
in order to, to benefit ourselves, in order to live life in a happy, healthy way, uh, and, and in order to achieve the mission of the company. Um, I think in the cannabis industry, because you're, you're building the plane while flying it, it's really complicated. Um, you can break even and still owe the government taxes. So it's, it's economically a, a difficult space to be in. I think for all of those reasons and a lot more, there are a lot of really distressed operators and distressed assets in cannabis. And distress will bring uh, discord and, and uh, discomfort within the employee population as well. And so the scenarios that I have seen play out uh, in cannabis surrounding unionization hasn't been because unions are necessarily organically the best option um, if everything is going really well. I think it's because employees needed their rights to be upheld. Um, so we, we at Rev constantly and within my portfolio companies elsewhere um, are, are constantly working to make sure that our employees feel really empowered, you know, promoting from within, uh, making sure that this is a career, not just a job, paying um, the best wages in the industry. Um, again, it all goes back to why we started the company to democratize earnings in cannabis. It's the same as what I used to do in, in, uh, in other luxury goods, that if your margins are sufficient enough, everyone should win together. Um, that can come in many forms. And when there's a lot of distress and a lot of unhappy employees, I think unions are one of the forms that it will start to occur more in cannabis. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot of folks over here on the on the West Coast that put in way too much money in the in the beginning and created distressed assets on their own. Um, I'm wondering if that's creating FOMO for you in, in the emerging market over in Massachusetts, or do you have any FOMO? Are you do you try not to look at opportunities elsewhere with distressed assets and, and get outside of Massachusetts? Or are you just strictly focused in where you're at? Uh, me, Ryan, or or us, Revolutionary? Which what's more interesting? Uh, either. Well, I guess you. Sure. Um, so I've driven from Humboldt to San Diego a dozen times, looking at opportunities or or deals, however you want to call it, in California. And I've never uh, directly made an investment into a California operating asset. Um, funds that I'm invested in have. Uh, so Flocana is an example I, I'm an investor in. Um, and it's been really enlightening to watch that. Has it been uh, attractive to, to take it on as a distressed asset? I can tell you uh, objectively, no. Uh, the tax structure in California to start with, creates a massive disadvantage. Um, California tax structure plus 280E, plus the fact that you're bringing sand to the beach. Boy, it's a, it's a great place to generate revenue and it's a really hard place to make money. Um, so no, California has not, um, has not been attractive enough for me to, to go into directly as an investor or an operator. Um, what I will say, given where you're located, uh, to, to my understanding, in Washington, right? Yes. Up near Seattle? Right. Yeah. Um, I think the, the other side of the coin to what I just said about California, and this is true there as it is in, in Washington and Oregon, when, when operators can humbly 
efficiently and economically operate in free markets like uh, Washington and, and Oregon, they can work anywhere. Um, if you can, if you can generate sufficient margin in in a wine growing region, right, where the soil is so incredible that, and the sun is so so right, and the humidity is so right that you can generate biomass at a really inexpensive cost, and then consistently create a product thereafter. My God, what a what a uh, what a lesson uh, to bring to the rest of the country. And so, while as a while as an investor, I'm not interested in. Uh, 100% of what I've seen in California, probably 95% of what I've seen uh, from deal flow coming from Washington and, and, and Oregon. Um, I do absolutely applaud um, the, the visionaries, the employees, um, the chemists uh, who are making it work in these normalized markets. So here in Massachusetts, um, yes, we have a lot of business strategies that come from outside of the industry, but also I've had the benefit of not just being an operator and a founder with Rev, but I see, I don't know, 20 deals a week, um, good, bad, and ugly from other states. Mm-hmm. And so I can take lessons from the future uh, and try to show my team here what is bound to happen when supply outstrips demand and when um, when when brands become a, di- a dime a dozen. Um, I think there are something like 25,000 cannabis brands in the United States, about 15,000 of which are, are on the Western seaboard. And they all think that they're going to go to the moon. Um, meanwhile, as we saw in footwear across generations, to create a brand is really an exercise in creating trust. It's not about being a flash in the pan. And in cannabis, because there's no centralized manufacturing and it's such a new industry, those are really hard um, circumstances to create a brand within, to create brand trust and consistency. Um, so all of these lessons that we get to take from, from normalized markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder how many brands are in Oklahoma alone with 7,500 licenses and all the consolidation that needs to happen. Unreal. Be a, a, an actual Unreal. market. Yeah. Yeah. With all those deals you're seeing, 20, 20 deals a week, what are some of the prices per pound? Are you still seeing ridiculous, like $3,000 a pound uh, for some of these like emerging markets? Like I bet you Arizona, whoever's writing a deck in Arizona has got like $7,000 a pound. Somebody in Philly probably thinks it's going to be 10,000 a pound. Are you still seeing crazy valuations, arbitrary numbers and stupid numbers? Yeah. Yeah. Because of the sake of time, uh, short answer. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I can give you all kinds of examples to it and I can give you the timelines as to when that normalizes and the amount of capital per mm-hmm. capita that it takes to get to that normalization rate. So there's, there's math to it. Um, but short answer, yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, we, we kind of are starting to get out of, um, are trying to start to get out of this um, issue with supply chain constraints. China's still locked down. Um, that's going to cause a lot of issues. There's, there's still um, container ships grounded uh, <laughs> left and right if, when they're not yeah. sinking. Um, and, and all of that kind of 
brings to light the supply chain constraints that are still in existence. You guys are growing from, from soil. There's a lot of medium you know, that you need within their back guano and all of these uh, fertilizers and issues. And then when you're making your, your finished goods, like edibles, you're going to need sugar and all of these ingredients. What was it like during the, um, the pandemic and the supply chain issues? What, how difficult and challenging was it to try and just be in business? Gosh, um, I thought I had everything teed up and then you, you broadened it and said just to be in business. Um, so there are, there are really three, three questions that I'll pull out of that one um, and, and just ping them into me. One is how did the pandemic and the macro supply chain issues affect our business and the industry? Second is what are we doing and what do I care about relative to the supply chains in MIPS and in, in marijuana infused products and downstream products? Third is how did the pandemic affect our business? My God, I'll work backwards. The pandemic has really impacted our company um, in many ways. But as an example, in January, we had 70% of our staff in our factory, which is only one portion of our company, but 70% of the staff either got COVID or through contact tracing, we realized we're within proximity that it, they were in danger. And, um, and so the throughput coming through in January into February sales was drastically down. And so mitigating that, especially during a normalization period when margins are already being crushed here in Massachusetts, was, was really um, troubling, was, was really hard. Uh, equally so, the opposite side of that, that, uh, that coin is watching a team not panic not believe that we had lost any sort of secret sauce, you know, maintain 99 plus percent on time and full delivery with integrity and call every one of our clients and tell them what's going on. Uh, that allows for a business to continue to thrive going forward. So March and April sales are, are again, really, really solid. And that, that goes back to treating people really well and being part of a team. So go back to your question on, um, on unions or not. It, it's, it's really about is this team um, rowing in the same boat and gosh, when, when you're, when you're taking hits from a pandemic and normalization at the same time, um, you, you want to make sure that that's the case, uh, which I'm proud that it is, um, on the supply chain for, for living things, you know, the soil that, that we have, uh, as an example, that becomes really complicated because suppliers are digging deeper and deeper, trying to, uh, trying to nationalize or, or bring all of the soil in uh, domestically. And so that becomes pretty, uh, pretty gnarly what's coming into the factory. And we need to be really careful there, um, avoiding aphids and avoiding other, other uh, IPM issues. And then most importantly in our company, um, while this didn't it, it, it wasn't catalyzed by the pandemic or by supply chains within the uh, supply chain issues within the pandemic. My background is partially in the supply chain management and transparency world um, in fashion and diamonds and beyond um, food supply chains as an example. And so what Rev is doing right now that I'm really excited about is um, carrying out a program called Know Your Farm, where we are undertaking an initiative of going through every single one of our inputs, our chocolate, our sugar, our vanilla, our MCT oil, our coffee, anything, even the metal in our, 
in our vape pens um, is being scrutinized um, internally so that we can have confidence when we're delivering a product to a wholesale customer or an end, a wholesale client or an end customer that we know eventually exactly where everything came from. And I say eventually because this is not an easy process. I've done this with fashion companies as an example. And if our input is cotton, I can solve this for you in a few weeks. With a, over 200 SKUs coming out of the factory, it is hyper complex and this will never be done. But what I find really interesting, frustrating, um, perverse, backwards, uh, upside down, so many things in cannabis is that this industry, unlike fashion, is supposed to represent peace, love, joy, togetherness. We're supposed to generate enough capital for reparations. We're supposed to uh, have all kinds of different license classes so that we have a really democratized industry. All of those things I believe in and find to be wonderful to be uh, carried out in a commercial fashion. But it's backwards to then focus exclusively on cost of goods sold, on COGS, and have commodity sugar, commodity chocolate, commodity coffee, where we know how ugly those supply chains are. And there are lawsuits every month against the big producers of those generally coming out of Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. And so to get to the bottom of every single one of our inputs has, uh, we're about 18 months into this process. We're really proud of the progress that we've made. And, um, and I think we can now deliver a product. I know we are now delivering a product that matches the ethos of our, of our buyers. Um, this has been done in every other industry. And I just think that it's a cool opportunity to do this at the foundation of this one. Will the industry continue to have that feel good, you know, sense around it? Or is, is it going to just be up to individual companies, you know, like Tom shoes that is more, that has kind of an SRI or ESG um, mood to that? Is the, is the industry just going to be commoditized and, and, and just race to the bottom in terms of pricing and then just a few companies left over? What's your take? Um. Every state goes through a series of cycles and, um, and margin compression and, and, and the survival under the circumstances of market compression um, is, is equally cyclical. So I think if you chose a moment in time, it could look like this is an absolute race to the bottom. And probably if you go out 10 years from now and, and look backwards, the majority of products sold um, will be at very thin margins and it will look like a uh, largely a race to the bottom. However, there's a very robust, meaningful, uh, profitable craft brewing industry, as an example. And a lot of those companies uh, either have really sophisticated um, uh, approaches Unlike, unlike the commoditized uh, options, they get, they get purchased at pretty, pretty healthy revenue uh, multiples or EBITDA multiples. Um, and hopefully that continues to better the overall space. I think that's happening in fashion. It's certainly happening in food. Um, but sometimes I feel I am in echo chambers that our coastal communities are, are different than, um, than, than our entire US population. So 
to the answer more succinctly is to an extent, yes, I think uh, the cannabis industry has an opportunity to do it differently ubiquitously. Um, will it? What I've learned in fashion, diamonds, and elsewhere is people say one thing and then they shop with their wallets. Mm. And that's really disappointing. Um, but I think that this space could do it differently. Mm. Okay. What, what about locally where you're at? So with Rev Clinics, I believe you guys have three locations. Is that something you guys are going to be expanding out and trying to claim more market share? I know you're just looking at Massachusetts, um, but are you looking at trying to have total domination within Massachusetts? Are you going to be expanding? Sure. Um, so one, there's no total domination in Massachusetts, probably or elsewhere, but Massachusetts specifically because... Um, you can only have three adult use stores. Mm. You can have a max of three of every type of license. And so we could have a max of six licenses and then be as helpful as possible to myriad others. Um, there will be no domination. What Rev will do is find other single state or small companies that reflect our values, um, reflect our operating strategy of going deep really caring about our people, really caring about our consumers, uh, and not looking at this as a financial manipulation tool. Um, I see too much of that in the cannabis industry, and it's frankly not effective. Um, in an industry with this type of tax burden, tax treatment, uh, and, a, and a commoditization race to the bottom in vertical integration, financial manipulation doesn't work. Um, it's really, really hard. And so we believe in running a real business that generates free cash flow, regardless of all the excuses not to, and to adjust, adjust, adjust EBITDA, uh, as you hear in the public, public filings. It's all about cash flow. And um, there are a small number of other companies like that. And, uh, and we all see the future together, but don't rush into anything. Um, because it's hard to compare apples to apples in cannabis with different regulatory schemes in every state. When you see companies running out and trying to grab revenue in the form of an acquisition and they're spending 800, 900 million, uh, you know, when we saw Select and some of these California-based companies running up and grabbing, you know, producers in Oregon for astronomical sums, does that make you, uh, does that give you nightmares or does that, you know, bring excitement to your life? Like, where are you at when you look at the numbers and, and, you know, for me, I'm looking at it like that's, that's a $420 million valuation. It's arbitrary. That's a lawsuit waiting to happen. That's an $800 million deal. That was not arm's length. That's going to be an issue down the road. I'm seeing these things and it doesn't really bring excitement to me, but I'm sure a lot of these um, immediate shareholders are getting really excited. What is, what is your opinion? Um, I have a few companies that I've participated in that have had, astronomical valuations after I went in and I'm, I, I guess I'm happy for that. Um, do I believe that that's sustainable or that com every company deserves these high watermarks? For sure not. Um, for sure not. Um, I think it's really interesting to pick apart why each deal happened. And, and we don't have time for that today, but um, getting to know you over the course of time, I think 
I think that there's lessons to be learned from each of them and there's real value in many of them. Um, not all. Um, but if you, if you step back and you think, boy, did they, did they get acquired for distribution? Did they get acquired for some technology? Did they get acquired for team? Did they get acquired to, um, to manage, uh, 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 the other coast, you know, a West coast acquisition of East coast company. Um, I think there are lessons in each one. And if you're trying to time the market, you'll generally fail. Um, especially in an industry that won't refill your coffers, um, when you, when you've been operating at a cash flow negative, uh, strategy. And, and so I think this industry, like many is an exercise in, um, not being attracted to the shiny penny and, um, doing what you say you're going to do. I, I say to friends outside of the cannabis industry, if you're, um, not a jerk, if you do what you say you're going to do and you generate consistent products, that's actually a winning strategy in cannabis and <laughs> another industry that that's how you that's how you punch your ticket to get in. Mm. In cannabis, so few people do that. And everyone's just trying to scramble for territory. Um, again, in an industry where because of the tax, tax, uh, tax treatment, if you break even, you still owe money. But people spend every dollar that they bring in. April 15th of this year, which just happened, April 15th of next year is going to be a, a wild time for distressed buyers. How I spend about 20% of my time is working with a private equity firm that doesn't come into an industry with less than a $300 million check. There are only so many of those opportunities in the cannabis space. Mm-hmm. Um, and the deals that we're looking at are companies that from the outside in, you would not assume are on death's doorstep mm-hmm. because they have big chests and big bravado mm-hmm. and they're on CNBC all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you look at their debt stack you realize, gosh, they they assumed just looking at the math, they assumed that this was going to uh, that the safe banking act or something was going to give. And in 2022, 2023, they could re- refinance their multi hundred million dollar debt loads that they took on in 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. And I bet there was big celebration when they got those 200, 300 million dollar checks back then. Um, and then, you know, uh, 13, 14% interest rates across that type of, of, uh, of debt. When, when construction slows down, when competition increases, when margins decrease, and there's no movement in safe banking. Mm-hmm. Um, in an industry that does not have bankruptcy protection, something happens. And uh, we're going to see a lot of that in the next few quarters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been saying we're, we should be expecting a lot of consolidation, capitulation, just people who haven't paid themselves a salary in years. All of that's going to come to an end really quick. What about your own exit strategy? Are you going to be a, a Larry's Handy Mart in a world of 7-Elevens? Or are you going to sell out? Uh, and we, I, I say that because when legalization happens, a lot of these, um, you know, one-off stores or, or even three-off stores could get drowned out by, you know, a Seven Eleven, for example. If Seven Eleven starts selling cannabis, so what is your exit strategy? Are you going to survive until the end of time, or are you already looking at an exit strategy? As I said, I, I think that um, Rev's most organic option is to find, not find, because we found them, but to uh, partner with 
somewhere between two and four other groups that have similar philosophies as we do. And when U.S. public exchanges open to our type of business, um, that's a real option. But operating with exit as the goal generally creates a deficiency at some point. We operate as if we're going to hold this individually forever. That won't be the case. Um, our team gets poked at all the time because we have really, really good people uh, who are in it for the long haul. Um, our strategies are built for this type of um, this this type of change, normalization, and in, in a really rapid succession. This Kiva is not my company, but I wear their shirt proudly because we manufacture for them here in Kiva, uh, here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Same thing that we've done in other industries um, as a family, and so. I think, I think uh, operating for um, free cash flow with a happy team for as long as it takes to do it right, um, I think is a is a much healthier way to approach this space. In particular, um, you know, I, I'm I spend sixty or seventy percent of my time in cannabis, uh, I'm in private equity and venture capital and other industries, and hitting a five million dollar ARR in technology. Could get you a fifty one hundred million dollar exit, and so there's good reason to build other types of companies for immediate exit if you see the need and you can time the market. But cannabis has so much complexity and so many falling knives at the same time that um, you you really need to operate conservatively. Mm -hmm. Leafly is going to ring the bell on the NASDAQ on 420. What does that mean for the industry as we're seeing more companies go public? What would it mean for you guys if you were publicly traded? You're talking about private equity, but on the public marketplace, different uh, scenario. Is that intriguing to you when plant touching based companies can be treated equally on the big board exchanges? Is that an excitement yeah. or is that an, uh, a liability? Oh, I think it's an excitement. Um, Professional, responsible companies get rewarded by public markets. Um, will we do it, uh, you know, as a reaction? Absolutely not, because there are there are downsides to um, to there's a downsides and a real expense. There's a real cost to public earnings uh, or being being held to public earnings. And I like operating a company for three, five, 10 year outlooks, not for quarter over quarter notches. Um, but if plant, if, and when plant plant touching companies are allowed to trade on these major exchanges, what that signals is banking is in play. Institutional capital is in play. And that I'm very excited about. I'm excited about it for our companies. I'm also excited about it because even though not everybody gets along between the different factions in cannabis, in order for social equity and economic empowerment license holders to really excel and to succeed, by succeed, I don't mean open, I mean create a sustainable business, mm -hmm. banking needs to change for them too. Mm -hmm. The government can't give major grants without bank banking regulation, banking reform. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about the same access to capital as we would achieve in any other industry via the public markets. Um, or I'm just excited for the fact that the next Cargill is going to be built. 
that, that's that's a wonderful opportunity. Uh, Ryan, we covered a lot in the short period of time. Anything else at this point that you want to dive into before uh, before we go? No, um, this is this is all to the benefit of of your listeners, and I'm always available. So I, I won't whiteboard, but always always happy to share my opinion. Um, as my co-founder says, he's 83 years old, and I try to listen to people twice or more my age. Um, those who live by a crystal ball eat a lot of glass. Um, so, so take, take all of this with a grain of salt, but, um, uh, we've seen a lot of this play out in other States. Um, and Rev is positioned to do it in mass to succeed. Um, and I just hope that the whole industry, all the factions that I've mentioned, um, can find the positivity in what each other are doing and work together. That would be my, my, my hope for 2022. If people want to find out where you're at, social media, website, or otherwise, where can they find you? Um, I'm not on social media, um, but I'm accessible on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I have a grizzly old beard on LinkedIn because it, it limits the people that reach out to me by about 50%. <laughs> and, um, and, and so don't be fooled by that. Uh, otherwise you can find revolutionary clinics, uh, and then my hold, co- my holding company is called Ramagius, R-A-M-A-G-I-O-U-S. Uh, and that's, that's, uh, just a website, just an old fashioned shingle. All right. Good news. Um, I think we can put, uh, Rev Clinics in, uh, the YouTube description without YouTube flipping out on us like they have in the past. So we'll do that as well as, uh, Ryan's LinkedIn contact and you can bug him all day long. But with that, I think we're gonna have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Ryan Anson. He is the uh, founder president of Rev Clinics. Ryan, thanks again for being with us at the Talking Hedge. Thank you. I just want to point one thing out as we're still recording. I'm really proud to be co-founder. Uh, we don't have a president. We have an excellent CEO uh, who's my partner uh, who, who runs this along with a really adept COO. And uh, I'm happy to be as helpful as I can, but it would be uh, inauthentic uh, to, to walk away as founder and president without mentioning the fact that, thank God, other people are making these trains arrive on time. So really solid team. So thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.